the kind of glasses I can read with out here from the pulpit. And uh, without them, John would have had to read the scripture. <laughs> and uh, I, I want to read it myself. So it's in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 following. You will remember that we have been studying for these past few Sundays on the Lord's Prayer. I apologize that last Sunday I was sick and unable to be here, but I know that you got a good message on discipleship from John Akers, who's a great, wonderful friend to always step in at the last minute and help out. Uh, now then, in studying the Lord's Prayer, Jesus had instructed his disciples that they were not to use vain repetition. And I expect that that's about nine-tenths of what's done when the Lord's Prayer is said. It's vain repetition. We really do not pray it. And if we did pray it and mean it, it would scare the wits out of us because we would want to live up to it or we would be driven to the cross of Jesus Christ to seek forgiveness for not having lived up to it. One of the great problems with the Lord's Prayer in the early church was that they tried to spiritualize it too much. But it, uh, it is a model of brevity, less than a minute in length, and yet so powerful in what it seeks to teach us. First of all is the introduction, and then the three great petitions uh, that have to do uh, with God and his kingdom and his name and his will. And then, uh, that being for God's greater glory, come the three petitions that deal with us and our needs. Uh, which we will get into today. And one of the needs that we constantly have to pray for is for the forgiveness of sins. And yet this is the one part of the Lord's purpose. If he sinned against you a third time, you would forgive him. The fourth time you could let him have it. Uh, and so Peter thought he was being enormous, enormously magnanimous when he came up to Jesus one day and approached him with this matter of forgiveness. And I suppose as a pastor, there are few uh, things that people come to me more with than with the matter of forgiveness and what it means. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now look at super spiritual Peter. Up to seven times. There are very few people here will forgive anyone seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but unto seventy times seven. Peter must have been taken back. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him ten thousand talents. That would have been a uh, million uh, of dollars in our day. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him and said, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him 
and forgave him the entire debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servants, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. May God help us to understand and live up to this part of his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the beauty of the things which we have already been able to listen to in the wonderful music of the solo and the choir's anthem and the hymns which we have sung, uh, messages which uh, can speak to our hearts deeply, uh, not only of our desire for praise to Thee and our desire to draw closer to Thee, but helping us to know your peace and to know your presence and by your mercy to know your forgiveness. And now as we come to our lesson, we pray that you will teach us from it and then help us to practice it day by day. We pray that you will receive the gifts which we bring, these tokens of the measure of talent or strength or inheritance or whatever we have. And we pray that they may be used in some a tangible way to reach out and to bless people to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Someone said to me one time that if they had been writing the Lord's Prayer, they would have begun by saying, uh, first of all, that they should, uh, they would have prayed for their daily bread. Instead of praying, first of all, for hallowing of the name of God and for his kingly reign and for his will to be done, 
But the reason our Lord Jesus teaches us to seek first his kingdom and the reason we get into so much difficulty in life is that we do not really put that first is that when we seek God first we are putting beneath us the rock upon which we may build. You will remember that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount he talks about the man who built his house upon the rock and how the winds blew and the rains came, and that house stood because it was founded upon a rock, was built upon a strong foundation. The word amen in Hebrew carries with it some of the connotation of rock. He is my rock and my fortress. Our rock is not as their rock, our enemies themselves being the judges, is an old favorite text from the Old Testament. And so when we build upon the rock, it means that we put a structure beneath our life. And so it's right that we should first of all reverence his name, knowing that we're coming into the presence of the Almighty that we are to seek his kingly reign over us, an effective ruling uh, power over us of God by his word. And then we are to do not our will, but his will. This is what takes many of our young people to the mission field. This is what should motivate each one of us in what we're doing in life, that we are truly seeking to do his will, not ours. This past week, many of you have been watching the winds of war, the famous $40 million television series that ABC has produced in order to show something of the three years that preceded World War II. And if you have watched in that, you saw Commander Pug Henry, the uh, principal character around whom the stories are woven, who is the American naval attaché in Berlin before World War II begins. He has a rather light-headed wife who evidently has inherited a lot of money and uh, their children go to fine schools, and he has been well-educated. And uh, there in Berlin, you remember, they take over a marvelous, magnificent uh, house and grounds that were owned by some Jewish man who had been forced to give it up for $78 a month. And uh, Commander Henry feels uh, guilty of for having to do this. His wife seems glad to get the big house and has just a little twinge of conscience, just enough to make her an American. Uh, and uh, uh, then you watch the figures that go in and out. The idiot congressman from Florida uh, who is insensitive and tells uh, Jewish jokes in the presence of uh, the Jewish uh, a fiancé of one of Commander Henry's sons uh, and who 
says that these wars in Europe have nothing to do with America and who seems to have no sympathy for all of the burning and the hellish horrors that have been unleashed against the Polish people and the Czechoslovakian people and then of course the war rapidly begins to spread. Now the strains that are being brought out in that remarkable series is this that one man, Commander Henry, has enough sense to know that the cracks are beginning to form on the, rocks upon, on the rock upon which we stand as far as the world and civilization are concerned. And that if the madness of Hitler is to continue and to spread, that there will be horror upon horror to follow. And it is his early reporting to this effect that attracts his attention to the present and causes him to use him as an uh, extraordinary emissary to bring information to him. Well, now the reason that we pray first in the Lord's Prayer for the hallowing of his name and for the extending of his kingdom, and for the doing of his will, is that that is the rock upon which we must build. That is the rock upon which we must build. No one knows what's going to happen in the world in which we live. I saw Howard K. Smith uh, being interviewed in one of those uh, programs that's a spin-off from this big program. Howard K. Smith, I remember seeing him once come in the Asheville airport speaking over at Mars Hill College. He was in Berlin. He wrote a famous book called Berlin Diary. And someone asked him if there was any analogy that he could draw between what was happening then and what is happening today in the world. And Howard K. Smith said yes that communism has concentric circles that keep reaching out further and further in a determined way to engulf the world. And there is an analogy there. We as Christians seek to build upon the rock. We wish to build in the name of our God We wish to extend his kingly reign and we want desperately to do his will. Now we live in physical bodies and to have the strength to honor his name by our deeds and to extend his kingdom and to do his will, we need physical strength. And so it is right for us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Does not say, give us this day our daily cake. Some of us might want that. But he says, give us this day our daily bread. What is necessary uh, for us to hallow his name, to extend his kingdom, to do his will? This is what we are to pray for. When we ask God to give to us 
we reckon ourselves as dependent upon him. And we never get in greater difficulty than when we get to a place where we think we are independent of God. That the things which have come to us have been achieved by our own doing. And we forget God. And we no longer seek to hallow his name, to extend his kingdom, to do his will. We forget that our daily bread comes from him. And when that happens, either to an individual or to a nation, he lives as a practical atheist, as though God does not really exist. I remember once talking to a man in great trouble. He would light one cigarette with the one that he was throwing away. He was an alcoholic, a very rich man. And as we talked, he said to me, I heard the singing in the Vespers. And I heard this happened in a hospital where I was holding a service. And he said, I heard amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And he said, I used to sing that song. He said, you wouldn't believe it looking at me now, but I used to be the superintendent of the Sunday school in our church. But he said, I invented an important little device that's used in the textile industry. And I quickly found myself rich. And I built bigger, a bigger house and we brought bigger cars. And I tried to enter into the circles of richer and more famous and affluent people. And he said, gradually God went into the background as far as my life was concerned. And then he told me the sad story of how his wife had taken up with another man at some party and how he had taken a gun himself to go and kill this man, only to find that his wife was dead, having been shot by her illicit lover who turned the gun on himself and killed himself as well. He said, now my children are in despair, and here I am. What was the man there for? He was there seeking, really, forgiveness. He had tried to live independent of God and everything flew to pieces. And when he talked to me, the big tears were coming down his face and my heart went out to him. I'm thankful to say that today, as far as I know, he's straight. And he is seeking to live for God. And I'm thankful that he is trying to help others himself. Well, when we pray, forgive us our debts 
And it really doesn't make any difference whether you say trespasses or debts or sins. They come out at the same place. Uh, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven, is a more correct translation here, our debtors. Before we dare go to God to ask him to forgive us, we must have already cleared the slate and forgiven those who have sinned against us. And that's where the rub really comes in. Because to forgive means to put something down, to put it down and to go off and leave it, and not to get it anymore. Someone <laughs> told me about a man who had phony forgiveness. He said, someone else said, well, he's buried the hatchet. And the other guy said, he may have buried the hatchet, but I'll guarantee you he knows where the handle's sticking up and he can go get it. <laughs> and that's not forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness uh, leaves it, and it's gone. It's an idiocy to say, I can forgive, but I cannot forget. You better learn to forget. Or you better take the bitterness out of the memory. Then you are coming into the territory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you look at Jesus Christ, having been stretched out on the ground and having brutal Roman soldiers pounding nails into his quivering flesh and bones, after a night of fierce suffering, and hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's when we're like Jesus. And he is teaching us forgiveness here. And that forgiveness comes by way of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he wants us, he wants us in the family of God. And he wants us in that family to forgive. And he wants our relationships to be as they should be. And so that means we forgive. Now this is not a bargaining type of forgiveness. It's not our going to God and saying, Now Lord, I'm going to forgive all of these crummy people who have sinned against me. And in return, I've done a few things that I'd like for you to overlook. That's not it. Prayer is submitting to God. It's not bargaining with God. Pagan prayers are a bargain with God. But this is not a bargain that we make with God. Uh, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, and I think that Don King, I should have had him up here this morning to say something about this, uh, would be glad to point out to you that uh, one of the most, the Chronicles of Narnia are those seven children's books which C.S. Lewis wrote about the little children who were taken out of uh, London during the time of the great bombing of London when civilian populations were being uh, destroyed. 
and they were taken into the country, and these little children went into an, a professor's house, and you know how kids like to go into a, a, a something where they can close the door. Lewis is very cute in his writing. He always says that they were careful to leave the door open. <laughs> he doesn't want anyone to get into an icebox or a closet or a door and get trapped, so he says that there's a way to get out of it. Well, anyway, they go into the wardrobe and they come out in this cold land of Narnia, which is a magic land. And there they go through many adventures. And in one of his books, The Magician's Nephew, there is uh, a little boy by the name of Diggory who is sent on a great mission by Aslan, the huge, huge lion who is the Christ figure. And Aslan can do anything. When Aslan sings, Narnia is created. Aslan has all the power in heaven and in earth. And little Diggory, when he had gone into the wardrobe and come out in the mysterious land of Narnia, had one thing very much on his mind. He was leaving his mother, who had cancer. And he did not realize what those of us who've read some of the Narnia books know is that time in Narnia does not take away from time in the real world. And he's gone away into Narnia, but he's thinking about his mother. He has a great horse named Strawberry, and he's going to be sent on some mission by Aslan. And when Aslan tells him all that he is to do, Aslan is the big lion, the Christ figure, so powerful and so big. Diggory, before he leaves to go on this trip, wants to bargain. He's tempted to bargain with Aslan and say, I'll do this if you will help my mother. Now, we sometimes try to do this in prayer. But he suddenly realizes that you don't say this to Aslan. Now that's a great insight by Lewis into real prayer to Jesus Christ. You don't bargain with him. And so he simply blurts out to Aslan before he leaves to go on the trip. He blurts out, and that's a good word for prayer. It just comes out. He says, Aslan, oh Aslan, if there is anything you can do, will you please help mother? And while he is saying that, he is ashamed to look up into the face of Aslan and he's looking at the huge claws of Aslan. And that's like the words Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Hallowed be thy name. That's like the words of the rock there, the reverence to God. But here is a practical matter, his mother's sickness. But then he looks up from those claws and the giant tawny face of the lion Aslan and he sees that Aslan's eyes are full of enormous tears that are coming down his face. And then he realizes the strangest feeling 
that Aslan is really sorrier for his mother than he is himself. And that's a tremendous insight. Remember that when you're praying for someone who has cancer and is going through terrible pain. Remember that when you go to someone whose heart is crushed with grief, that Jesus Christ loves them more than you do. And he's sorrier than you feel sorry for them. That's a great insight. And so we don't bargain. We blurt out our needs there to him. And so... Jesus is teaching us here that we may present our needs to God, seeking our forgiveness and knowing that he is ruling over all things and ruling for his own glory. You know, the other day Joe Bailey was here. I don't know if you know anything about Joe or not, but Joe had three sons. He had an 18-year-old who was a National Merit Scholar, a student at Swarthmore who was killed in a sledding accident. He had a six-year-old who died a very painful death with leukemia. And he had another younger son who died also. And he knows what sorrow is like. You can learn from a man who has suffered like that. And when we were talking, he said back in the office there one morning when we were praying together, he told of a, a minister friend of his, whose wife had died and this minister had married again. And he had a little boy. And the stepmother was like stepmothers you think about as being mean. She was just terribly mean to him. And uh, now she is old and in a nursing home. And this man has grown up and is in his 50s now. And he visits her regularly in the nursing home and takes care of her and her needs. He has been able to lay aside and to forgive the things which she put upon him as a small boy and is able to show love to her in her needs. And Joe was touched by that when we were talking about forgiveness. And when I've thought about forgiveness, I've thought about people. I think about that man who had done so many things, who, whose life has been transformed by Christ. And then I think about other gentler souls that I have known who also have been able to forgive too. And that's why I sent for this little book. I wanted it very much. And the reason that I wanted it is that a few years ago, 
my wife's mother died, and she was one of the gentlest, most unselfish people that I ever knew in all my life. And this is her little prayer book. And I brought it with me because it's marked. And when I think about her, if there were two words by which I would characterize her, it would be the fact that almost her favorite saying was, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And next to that would have been her incredible generosity. She was the most generous human being that I ever, ever knew. And look at this prayer, which she's marked, and think of the kind of person I've just described to you in a nursing home, old and unable to turn the pages because of arthritis. I confess, O oh God, that often I have let my mind wander down unclean and forbidden ways, that often I have deceived myself as to where my plain duty lies, that often by concealing my real motives I pretend to be better than I am, that often my honesty is only a matter of policy, that often my affection for my friends is only a refined form of caring for myself, that often my sparing of my enemy is due to nothing more than cowardice, that often I do good deeds only that they may be seen of men, and I shun evil ones because I fear they may be found out. Give me grace, O God, to pray now with a pure and sincere desire for all those with whom I have had to do this day, and let me remember now my friends with love and my enemies with forgiveness, entrusting them all as I now entrust my own soul and body to thy protection and care. If she ever had an enemy, I don't know how it could have been. And then there's the word from a hymn. They who fain would love thee best are conscious most of wrong within. They who fain would love thee best are conscious most of love within. And what's the reward? Just one glimpse of Jesus in glory brings that out. And I close with this. And it's a letter that came after her death, that came to my wife. You know who wrote it? Dr. Davis, who was the president of this college and minister for many years at the church in Asheville, the First Presbyterian Church. Our hearts are tender towards you in the death of your mother. One is never prepared for separation from one so near. My own mother died in January 1979. She was 96 years of age. She had not been a patient in a hospital until the day before she died. 
Her five children were born at home, as was the custom then. Mama lived her life within five miles of the farm where she was born. Her sisters live on that farm today. Looking back, I can see clearly that home was the place where Mama lived. The family moved from one house to another while I was away at Davidson College. I did not return to the old house, but I came back to the new one, and Mama was there. It was home. Now she is in the Father's house. The Savior is there. Papa is there. And one day, I shall go home too. When Mama died, my sister and I were sad and lonely, but we were also thankful. So we comfort one another in Christ with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For we have a house not made with hands, which is eternal in the heavens, the only language spoken in heaven is the language of forgiveness in the family of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which holds up to us a mirror of just how much hypocrisy and sham there is in us all. If thou shouldst mark iniquities, O God, who could stand? We thank thee that you have promised in your word that you will remove our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west and that you will remember them against us no more. Now, Lord, in the light of this, it's stupid for us to hold grudges and not forgive. So keep us from disqualifying ourselves from forgiveness by our unwillingness to forgive others but help us to put it down, Lord, and to let it go. Maybe someone here this morning needs to do just that. And so we pray that you will give them that great grace which will free them up and cause them to know your grace and love, which has enabled you to forgive us, thereby enabling us to forgive others. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.